Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with the tire. Winter's Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew. First ever Clatcher's Comments episode. Okay, so this is what happened. On Monday when we recorded our episode, we recorded maybe almost three hours. And we realized there's too much going on. So we did do the fun facts segment and the Clatcher's Comment segment. But we realized towards the end that we were going to need to do another episode just for Clatcher's Comments. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to give it the time it needed to breathe and really think about your responses and give our opinions about them. And since then, thanks to you guys, even more Clatcher's comments came pouring in. So half of this episode will have been recorded Monday, and the other half will be Clatcher's comments that we are discussing today. So let's start off with some fun facts. We spoke about last episode, before the season premiere started, that there was that really cool countdown. And in between the countdown, they had them flexing their muscles, talking about how many nominations they got for each show. And those nominations equaled up to 111 for HBO, which is another new high. And again, they are number one. That's insane. And Netflix went from 70-something to 91, and they're number two now. I can't believe they're in that close of competition. Then we have NBC at three, FX Networks at four, and then somewhere down there at 10 or 11 is Amazon. Now, you said you can't believe they have that many. But it kind of makes sense if you break down how much was spent on original content this year. Netflix spent over $6 billion this year on its own shows. Wow. And put that in comparison to Amazon's reported spending of nearly $3 billion and with HBO at $2 billion. Now, HBO only, I say only, <laughs> only $2 billion, but comparatively only $2 billion, but they still are number one, which is really cool. No, it makes sense that you say only $2 billion because when we were talking about the numbers last year for season six, they stated they averaged $10 million per episode to produce Game of Thrones. Yes, but if you think about it, HBO does three, maybe four original television series per season. So fall, winter, summer, spring. That's still a lot of shows. This is a huge chunk right there just for Game of Thrones. True. And I don't think that number factors in what they're paying the actors. And we know that's a big number that was increased this season as well. No, I don't know if it does or not. Well, speaking of that, Jason, there was an article in Vanity Fair talking about the fact that HBO has greenlit an alternative history drama called Confederate. Oh, yeah. I saw that all over the internets. Everybody's talking about it. I must be late on this because I hadn't heard anything about it. But the summary says... Confederate chronicles the events leading to the Third American Civil War. The series takes place in an alternative timeline where the southern states have successfully seceded from the Union, giving rise to a nation in which slavery remains legal and has evolved into a modern institution. Wow. The story follows a broad swath of characters on both sides of the Mason-Dixon demilitarized zone. Freedom fighters, slave hunters, politicians, abolitionists, journalists, 
the executives of a slaveholding conglomerate, and the families of the people in their thrall. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, this new series is by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Well, we did read that they said they were sick and tired of dragons and fantasy. So this is a little more... It's a totally different way to <laughs> yeah. go. It makes me very excited, A, just because I would love to watch anything the Double Ds do. But B, it sounds really interesting. And moving on, thanks to At 80 Degrees for giving us the heads up on this. I think this was last week. Kit Harrington filmed three fake scenes, equaling 15 hours of filming to keep the real plot safe. This was on Jimmy Kimmel, wasn't it? Yes. Jimmy was up there, and he was prying and prying, and it looked like, I'm sure Kit Harrington gets sick of it. I'm sure the whole cast gets sick of it, and it probably loses its funniness. He looked so unenthused. Yeah. <laughs> and he kept trying to get him to slip up. He was like, so when do you guys start recording again? How long before you will go back to work shooting the show? Ah, well, you see, I mean, that was, that was sly as well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm back in the show. Uh, I, see, I can't I tell see. you. Okay, so there's nothing on the calendar at all. He, if he said, said it so quickly, though. You yeah. have to assume he was about to say, oh, mm -hmm. very soon. Because <laughs> we would know that he, he didn't die if he says, I'll, I'll go back to filming Absolutely. in such and such time. And as you were talking about, this wasn't just a little production. According to him, it was three fake scenes that each took five hours to shoot. Yeah. Now, who knows if that's the truth? By the end of them talking, he was saying, well, I could be lying about this. And how mm -hmm. do you know which scenes are fake? And maybe they're all real. So I don't know if any of that was the truth. I wonder why they let paparazzi come and film them while they're filming. Maybe they can't stop them. Or maybe they still want them there. It's like a, get, a push and pull. Mm. If that was the case, I would have had them film him dying. <laughs> And let those pictures go out. Jon Snow dies again. Well, there's enough theories about that as it is. It does have to get frustrating at times, though. And speaking of which, did you hear what happened to poor Ed Sheeran? Yes, I did. After the episode premiere? And I think we touched upon it a little bit, that some people weren't happy with it. They thought it pulled them out. But I didn't realize how unhappy. And there was a plethora of negative comments towards Ed Sheeran to the point where they said that he deleted his account for his a little Twitter while. His Twitter account. Yeah, and then now it's back up. But it has the check mark as if it's him, and it showed that he doesn't really use it. He doesn't use it often. And he only has like a couple of hundred, maybe 900-something followers, I believe, or maybe it was a couple thousand. Well, that could be why. Maybe he just didn't feel like dealing with all of this negative inundation I mean, people can be really mean. There's no cause for that. I didn't think there was anything wrong with his performance. I understand taking him personally out of it. Just saying when you have someone who's achieved that level of fame yeah. on a TV show that you're very familiar with the characters, a lot of the actors when we first started out Game of Thrones weren't that huge. Some of them we didn't really know at all, at least not here in the U.S. But this late in the game to kind of bring somebody in who is so popular and everyone knows so well. Maybe that takes you out for a minute. But as I said in the review, I thought he was very unobtrusive. They didn't give him too many lines. It focused on the other Lannister soldiers after that. And we didn't really talk about the fact that the song he was singing was Hands of Gold. And TV watchers, I'm sure, are familiar with that from back when we had the Tyrion Shea storyline going on. And he was Hand of the King. And instead of wearing a pin in the books, he had this necklace. It was a bunch of interlocking gold hands. He formed a chain, 
I don't know if he had that on the show. I, I feel like it must have been in existence because that's what he used to strangle Shay with. And that's how this song came about. One of the big bards or singers made up this song as another ploy to get at the Lannisters, hmm. to deface their name. And some very bad things happened to this singer in the books as a result of that. Not the character that Ed Sheeran is playing. No, I don't think we're meant to believe on the show that Ed Sheeran came up with the song. It's just, it's become popular since then. And that's what they did at the time. These are how the stories got told. They made up songs about them. And then different bards went to different areas of the kingdom and asked to be allowed to sing for the big houses. And they spread whatever stories they were trying to push through the songs they sang there. So I actually thought it was kind of cool that they had the song make a reappearance because it, it was a much bigger deal in the books. Yeah, but how did you memorize it? You were singing along with it. Oh, well, that's what I mean. They sang it a lot. In the books? In the books. And you know, not only did I read them, but I listened to the audiobooks about a million times. And so you have Roy Detrice giving his version of this song. Nothing against Roy Detrice. You know I love him, but Ed Sheeran did a much more beautiful job of it here of and course. I appreciated it. Yeah, so again, I don't understand. Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense what you're saying about the hate, but that much hate, it's kind of ridiculous. And for him personally, it really wasn't about him. No. Well, I guess Game of Thrones will be more careful in the future with any stars coming in. I kind of hope that they don't do that. I do like having the lesser known people on there so I can really just focus on the storyline. And especially when you've read the books, you have it built up in your mind, the image of these characters. So the more well-known an actor is, the harder it's going to be to mesh those unless they get it absolutely right. So I don't know if you've read, but there's also a very strong faction of people that are super disappointed with the Euron Greyjoy appearance. Last season, I was really down on it too because it's nothing like the books. I think they did a little better of a job with him here. The point is, it's just almost never going to live up to the hype. And when you're a show like Game of Thrones, you're going to have people hating on you left, right, and center, <laughs> whatever you do. I say keep doing your thing, GOT. All right, so let's start the Clatchers comments. And we want to thank all the Clatchers for emailing us, tweeting us, and Facebooking us. If you guys want to join in in the conversation for next week's episode, feel free to follow us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, or Facebook, CoffeeClatchCrew.com. And remember, you can always email us, contact at CoffeeClatchCrew.com, or go to our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com forward slash contact. And some of the big questions we brought up in our episode one review were what direction Arya is going to go, both geographically, will she continue south on this kill list, or north to reunite with her family, as well as mentally and emotionally. Did this interaction with the Lannister soldiers have a difference and impact her to rediscover her humanity a little bit? Or was that just wishful thinking, and she was showing restraint by not killing all of them? Hmm. What's Sam's next discovery in Old Town, and where does this go with him and Jorah? And what is the gift that Euron's bringing Cersei? For this episode, we want to start out with some shout-outs to the Honorable at Goper91, Melly, Richard, Lewis, Michael, whose comment we read on the last episode, and Connie, we read hers as well. Speaking of shout-outs, we want to give huge shout-outs to everyone who gave us ratings and reviews on our iTunes Game of Thrones channel. Really kind words, a lot of five-star reviews. We love it. We love you guys. Keep them coming. We really enjoy them, and it only helps us. Especially, too, I believe it was World Builder Emily, and I recognize that name. I kind of think she's written in before. 
It was a lovely review about how it feels like being at the water cooler, <laughs> having yeah. conversation with your friends about GOT. And that's exactly what we always shoot for. So thank you very much. As far as theories, Claudio talked about the lone wolf theory. We spoke last episode about who that could be. We thought that John was a red herring. He agrees. We wondered at Arya and Bran. Claudio thinks it makes a lot of sense that it's either Sansa or Arya. He thinks the quote about the lone wolf is an overarching reminder that in order for the remaining Starks to survive, they must remain together and not follow their own agendas in the case of Sansa power and Arya revenge. Then we also talked about Jamie. He says he thinks we're going to see him do the right thing and support the cause against the impending doom from the north. The only thing left he cares for is Cersei and also Tyrion. I suspect Cersei will meet her maker soon, although perhaps not directly at the hands of Danny. She's tough, and I wouldn't assume Danny will just swoop in and dismantle her so easily. But without Cersei, I believe Jaime and Tyrion will reunite. Remember Tyrion told Danny his brother was the only person in the world he trusted more than Varys. I think that's important and telling and will probably play a role. Oh, I hope so. He also likes the Lightbringer theory passing from Beric to Jon. Oh, good. Yeah, I do too. There's a reason why he's being brought back to life, and it's Jon. Okay, also Michael had a theory about Littlefinger. We all know he's a bit of a question mark. He seems loyal to Sansa, but for the most part, he only cares about himself and collecting as much power as possible. He wants the Iron Throne, and he's using Sansa to get there. If this Sansa-Littlefinger relationship takes a turn for the worse, it's not going to benefit the North. If Sansa is killed or completely shuts him down, then I think Littlefinger takes the Knights of the Vale to King's Landing to fight with Cersei. He's going to do whatever he thinks is best for him. And oh boy, the Knights of the Vale are the biggest force that the North has right now. Yes, they have wildlings, but they've just sent them to man the castles at the Wall. We know we're going to lose a lot there. They have the Northern armies that really aren't that plentiful or strong. And they have the Knights of the Vale. So if they lose that, they're really screwed. Yeah. And Sansa is kind of foreshadowing that with that warning of... Don't count out Cersei. She could still be a force to be reckoned with. And we can't turn Littlefinger away. He's still too dangerous. So I feel like she is setting up that a bit. And we need to be careful of that. And I want to give a thank you to Emily for being the first to order our Game of Thrones This Round is on Me t-shirt. She's like us, Chris. She had trouble picking a banner. And the way we resolved it was I picked Stark, you picked Targaryen. Well, she ordered Team Stark and Team Targaryen. Thank you for your support. We've only released them a day ago, and she already jumped on it. So thank you. You're always there for us. Yeah, that's amazing. And guys, listen, we know the teams aren't that clear-cut and simple. It's not even as clear-cut as fire versus ice, but this is just a fun way to get us kind of thinking about that message and what side we support. And if you support both, feel free to buy both. (laughs) But I also want to thank Emily for giving us some extra information. We always value this. She says, remember how she told us about The Expanse, the TV show that we should check out? Yeah. Those books are written by Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. Turns out they were the assistants slash collaborators for George R.R. Martin. (laughs) Frank was his personal assistant, and Abraham collaborated with him on the Wild Card series, as well as the Game of Thrones graphic novel, which I have and love. Apparently, they all live near each other in New Mexico. Daniel and Ty went off on their own to start mapping out their series in the mid-2000s, and their first book was published in 2011. It's a nine-book series. They've published five, with a sixth coming this year. They've done once a year since 2011. She says what she thought was interesting was that Martin had a mentoring role, but it seems the mentees were able to take their learning and really push forward. 
Because they have a map split the work and keep to a schedule, they're also able to be on the writing team for the sci-fi show. Very productive. And also, when the show was started, it was called Game of Thrones in Space. <laughs> uh, but now is The Expanse. So if you're interested in looking for more related stuff, you guys should also check out the books or the TV show or both. And also, there is that wildcard series that I never got into, but that's some more material out there. And at Orrin Shaw tweeted at us saying that Game of Thrones has jumped the shark. He really did not like last episode. And I told him I disagree. And he wrote back, how did Sam find the location of Dragonglass in the first book he was reading? Meaning like, how did he just find the first book and, and like the one he grabs is the right one? Well, the thing is, that's a good question. The thing is, I, it looks like he took a ton of books because he and Gilly are both sitting there going yeah. through books at home. So I think they've been researching kind of all night. And he probably looked for ones that had relevant titles, you know, The Long Night or... We know one of them was called The Legend of the Long Night. So it kind of would make sense if that was in there. And he also stated, I want to love the episode, but I couldn't. Sam at the Citadel was just weird editing. Well, yeah, it was very jumpy. It was definitely a different tone from what Game of Thrones normally does. That shit montage was very unlike them. But I I think they had to pass the time quickly for us. They had to let us know what he's been up to and how long and arduous this is he didn't just step in and all of a sudden he's talking to the maester and asking for keys permission and also that he's still in such a low man on the totem pole role and i think that's setting us up he's going to be in trouble when they find out what he's up to but also i don't think he just stumbled upon the big secret i don't think this is the big secret in episode one not at all and his last question was what motivates cersei now that all her kids died power Power. You know, we talked about this a lot. That sounds simplistic if you haven't read the books and you don't have the background on Cersei. So I do have to tell you, these aren't spoilers. This is going back, back too early on in the book series. But just to kind of flesh it out a bit more for you, they gave us more to what went on the scenes behind Cersei and tried to make us kind of feel for her and empathize with her a lot more than on the TV show. Once upon a time, when the Mad King was ruling, but he wasn't quite so mad yet, and the Lannisters were under him, Tywin was his right-hand man, his eldest son was Rhaegar Targaryen, who we know through this story, we've found out recently, is Jon's father. Well, he was a good-looking man, (laughs) and Cersei, at a very young age, fell madly in love with him, and it turns out Tywin was talking to the king to try to arrange for a marriage alliance between Cersei and Rhaegar. And at first, the king was open to this. But as time went on, he started to become a little more crazy, a little more paranoid. He didn't want Tywin having any more power than he already did. So he changed his mind and he turned him down and said, my son, the heir to the throne, isn't marrying my underling's daughter. Marriage is off. Cersei was heartbroken. You fast forward a little bit towards Robert's Rebellion, when Robert was young, he was in love with Lyanna Stark, Ned's younger sister. Part of the main reason he launched that war to overthrow the Targaryens and the Mad King was because he found out that Rhaegar kidnapped Lyanna Stark and was keeping her there. Now, we know, we believe, they actually had a consensual loving relationship and may have even married in secret, and that's when Lyanna got pregnant with little baby Jon Snow, (laughs) but Robert didn't know that. And so he went off to go fight Rhaegar Targaryen, 
Ned went to go rescue Lyanna. And we think that scene that we saw at the Tower of Joy was Lyanna telling him, you know, I really did love him and this is our baby, but he's going to be in a ton of danger. Take him and take care of him. After that, Lyanna dies. And so Robert's never able to be with her. And the new marriage alliance that's brokered is for Cersei because the Lannisters will still make good allies. They have a lot of gold. After all, they're very rich. Tywin helped to advise the last king for a long time. But Cersei never wanted to marry Robert. He was this big war hero. I mean, yeah, he was strong and handsome back in the day, but kind of brutish and nothing like Rhaegar Targaryen, who Robert had killed, by the way. And now he comes back to be with her, but he really always loves Lyanna. Their first night in bed together, he accidentally calls her Lyanna. She knows he never loves her. She never gets to be with the man she wants. Her family and herself are always second in power behind these people that she sees as less fitting to rule. And the only way she's even able to start to climb to power in the books is by sleeping with tons of men to find a way to control them. So she's been waiting a long time for this position. I mean, it's more than just an obsession, although it definitely is that. She's becoming the Mad Queen. But perhaps by knowing a bit of that background, we understand a little more where she's coming from and how serious this is to her. This isn't just a game she's playing. And it's not about building an empire for her children or for Jamie or whatever. It's for her because it's her time now. And nothing is going to stop her from doing that until they kill her. Ooh, thank you, Christina. Melly Bamboo said, Arya should have used the soldiers instead of killing them, but still a great opening scene. Smiley face, wine, and masks. That was perfect. I heard this on another podcast, and I thought it was so true. They said, why didn't she order them as Walder Frey to go pretend to be in alliance with the Lannisters, but take them out? Ah. Take out Jamie and Cersei. Now, I don't know if they could have really done that, how skilled the Frey men are, but it certainly would have been a more tactical thing rather than just kill all of them before you can even make use of them. Right. But I don't think she was thinking about it that way. She was just thinking about it emotionally. She wanted revenge and she saw her chance. Yeah, I suppose tactics-wise, she hasn't learned that part yet. We have to remember she's very young and she's pretty badass for her age, but she hasn't learned war tactics yet. She's learned more about tactics of uh, being a hitman, basically. So she's not looking at the big picture yet. Hopefully she will start to. She's very narrow-minded right now. And as a child, you really are. You often don't look at the big picture. But great question. And at Emily Jasper, she wrote to us, and I do mirror her thoughts, but also with a heavy heart. What makes me giddy is Brienne and Tormund. I love that. But now that we know... Talk about shipping. Yeah. uh, It's so hard to even feel good for a second about it. Because we know Tormund's going to go up north, and we know he's marching to his death, unfortunately. you got to know right now, in this season, the people that are in really big trouble are sort of your B-list. I don't even want to call them periphery characters, because they're not. They're important. But the Tormund Giants Beans, the Podrick Paynes, the Bronze of the world, the the Grey Worms, the Dario Naharis, these are not people that are probably going to make it to the end of season seven. Even perhaps some that we like a little bit more, but but definitely the second tier, 
you got to be really worried for them. And if nothing else, I don't think they're getting their their happy ending love story. I think that was probably the closest we're going to see that interaction between the two of them. So I'm just going to hold on to that and savor it because it was priceless. Well, it's never Brienne. She's not into him. Oh, that's what makes it so perfect. (laughs) I love the way Tormund looks at her. I mean, first of all, her whole life, she's been made fun of and jeered, right? And if people courted her, it was because they were messing with her. Mm -hmm. It's like, psych, no, I I don't want you. So she doesn't even really know what to make of that at first. She's like, who are you? You're like this wildling ginger man and you're really big and tall and you think that my fighting is sexy. Like, do you want to fight me, kill me, date me? Um, But I think he would grow on her given enough time. Yeah. And I think they would be really cute together. They would be awesome together. All right, Jason, here's a name you haven't heard in a while. We got a comment from Darnell. And I have to tell you the funny story about this is... He wrote in, I read the theory, mm-hmm. I write back to him, it's not until today that you say to me, hey, you know that's our friend, Darnell, <laughs> fellow Coffee Clutch Crew podcaster, Darnell. And I said, no, I had no idea, he didn't write it in the comments. <laughs> yeah, I guess he just assumed, and he said, "Longtime member, first time writer. I thought it was just some Clatcher Thing? lurking in the shadows, <laughs> you know, a lot of people listen for many years and they just don't write in. Right. So Darnell, Christine is an idiot. Sorry. Just erase that really (laughs) nice comment I sent to you. No, I'm kidding. Here's Darnell's question. Regarding this past Sunday's episode, would it be possible to discuss the scene with the White Walkers' march to the wall? Even though it was only a minute, I saw a lot of things with that scene. I have watched it over 10 times now since I'm obsessed with the White Walkers. Me too. (laughs) They're one of my favorite parts. He says, number one, the army has at least three giants. Do you think one of them is 1-1? I want to say yes, but I remember him getting killed by Ramsay in the Battle of the Bastards, unless they dragged his body beyond the wall. So I responded that I don't think this was actually 1-1 because it's probably too far to drag a giant's body that distance. It seems like Winterfell is very close to the wall, and it sort of is, but that would still be a long way. Plus, John and his men know about the transformation now into whites, so I assume they're burning all of the dead the way that he did with Ygritte to stop them from coming back. Now, that's not to say I don't think we couldn't see 1-1 reincarnated at some point, but there used to be a clan of giants. So I'm guessing there were just more bodies north of the wall that they were able to reanimate. Perhaps. But also, Claudio wrote into us and said, I don't believe the shot of the walker was north of the wall. The foreground looked like grass until they reached it. I think this was a future vision of Brands, and they were already south, which would mean the wall did not stop their advance. So I went back and I looked, and I looked, and I looked. (laughs) Claudio got me really excited. I don't think it was grass. I think it's just very gray in the foreground. And as the background comes zooming in, now you can see more and more white. So I don't think that's true. But if it is, that means that could have been one one because they already are past the wall. Yeah, a couple of things. I agree with you that it looked like a plane in front of him, but there has been a lot of conversation about when did this scene take place. We know that Bran is able to see events in the past. We also believe he might be able to get glimpses of things in the future. That's sort of what Greensight is about. But I'm wondering why we would get that, and then later we get the vision that the hound is able to see in the flames of the right. walkers actually crossing. It feels like there's going to be a pivotal moment when they get to Eastwatch and the battle we're going to have to have there. Um, unless it's just to warn Bran, this is going to keep going. 
They're going to win that battle. They're going to advance and keep moving south. Uh, Be on the lookout. What is he supposed to do with a vision like that? Just make us panic. But when Claudio wrote this, I was at work and I went to my coworker, Mello, and I asked him about it. So he pulled it up really fast on his computer and we were looking at the map, the opening sequence again. And when they go to the wall, this time the way they zoom out away from the wall once they do the animation, this could be my mind, our minds playing tricks on us. It could have just been a reflection. But the water on the right side of the wall at a certain angle before it gets super wide shot looks like ice. Now let me ask you, if the water turns into ice, can they walk over it? Because if that's so, they just walk around the wall. Yeah, we had talked about that last season. From the books, there was a prophecy about a figure with blue eyes and gray smiling lips or something along those lines standing at the prow of a ship. We were kind of speculating back then on who that could be. Was it Euron Greyjoy, Jorah, or was it the Night's King? Had they actually figured out how to get a ship and come over here? We dismissed that, though, saying if that was a possibility, they would have done that a long time ago, and they probably can't traverse water, and that's why the scene at Hardhome ended the way it did, unless, as you brought up then, they could turn it to ice. It's really the same problem, right? Why haven't they done that in the past, if that's an ability they have? So I keep coming back to, I think this is going to have to be a battle that you see at the wall. I think we will get that moment where we see the magic weaken and we see Tormund and his men fighting them and losing. But the second part of Darnell's comment was that it seems the Night King may have some type of psychic or telepathic abilities. He seems to know when to plan accordingly, and thus he would not decide to go into a huge battle against the humans unless he was pretty confident and knew what to expect, which leads to dragons. In the White Walker scene, did you notice the giant to the far left had some sort of spear or bow weapon with him? If you missed it, you can just YouTube this scene. It's up there. You can watch it slowly. Why would a giant need something that huge unless he was going to kill something that huge, like a dragon? And Mm -hmm. dot, 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 create an ice dragon. I think it's plausible and will probably happen. You heard it first. (laughs) Yeah, I think we talked about that. I think we will see a badass ice dragon, which is Really sad for me because I love those dragons. I don't want to be against them. Then again, going into what your my theory. theory is, that would make the dragon a good guy. I hate you. Well, and we thought the dragons would have to get pitted against each other. We've always said we believed we would lose at least one in this war. If history repeats itself and that feels like something George is setting up, With his books, he goes back to a lot of the history of old Game of Thrones back before this time. Why would he include all that? Unless it's to inform us about what's going to happen in present and future. Right. Right? And so a lot of these stories about the Long Night can maybe give us a little bit of information. And yes, there were ice dragons. We don't know anything about them except that they existed, much the way ice fighters existed. And the White Walkers rode them. Still waiting to see that. So yes... I definitely think you are correct. There will be an ice dragon. It will fight the rest of the dragons. We will have dragon civil war. Also, if you remember when the free folk came to fight John when he was still a Night's Watch, one of the giants had a huge bow and arrow. Yeah, the battle at the wall. And he was doing massive damage Mm -hmm. with it. Remember, it was taking out huge chunks of the wall. Yeah. It seems like it has long range. It could get up pretty high. And while it might not kill a dragon... It could probably spear it so he could pull it down to earth where he would have a fighting chance to wrangle it and turn it. 
we assume, I guess, with Dragonglass to create it the way that they create oh, I see. White yeah. Walkers and transform. That's how they would transform it. Now that you bring up Dragonglass, you and I were just chit-chatting this week, and you had brought up the fact that Dragonglass has healing properties to it. Yeah, I'm not sure how I never talked about this or explained it to you. I guess because it was briefly mentioned in the books, they don't go into any detail about what the healing properties were, how that worked. But even on the show, they've shown us its wide range of abilities. The children used it to create the first White Walker. Then we see that it was also able to be used to stop a transformation. So when Benjen was turning white, the children were able to use it on him and stop the transformation. He was sort of halted midway in between. And we were a little frustrated with that last season saying, oh, geez, is the dragon glass just going to become a catch-all? But you rebutted that to say it's like anyone's kryptonite. It makes a lot of sense. It can hurt you, but it also has healing things to it. Now, a theory that's been floating around there, it is not mine. I just want to put this out there. Other podcasts were talking about it, but I thought it was brilliant. So I want to bring it up here. One of those podcasts is Bald Move. Shout out to those guys. They have a lot of great theories. They believe that Jorah may be healed of his grayscale through the use of dragonglass. And they're not alone. So if you think about this, Stannis' daughter Shireen had grayscale, as I'm sure you'll recall. But it was halted halfway. So when she got this as a child, Stannis was sending out to all the maesters, all the healers that he could find from all over the, the Seven Kingdoms, the world... Nobody could figure out how to fix it. Then somebody magically did, and we don't really know how. We assume it was probably related to Dragonglass because they were living on Dragonstone, which sits atop this huge cache of it. So maybe one of those healers was playing around with it and figured out a way to stop that from advancing for her. Now, if so, could there be some written knowledge about this at the Citadel. We were just saying, what would Sam's interaction conversations with Jorah be now moving forward? Will he find some of this in one of the books he's reading as he gets to know Jorah a little better and the connections they have together? Will he go to him and say, hey, this might be a cure for you. It's on Dragonstone. That's where Danny is. <laughs> Let's peace out of here. We ought to go get there. Get this mountain, bring it up to John, heal your grayscale. Yeah, perhaps. I just wonder what you would do. Would you melt it down and then apply it while it's still hot and liquid? I have no idea. One of our clatchers, Emily, also commented on this to say, I would say that Jorah was in a sanatorium. If you saw how weepy the wounds are, it looks like they're being treated. So we had discussed, is this a prison? Is it a hospital? More likely, is it a quarantine unit? Um, the area that I disagree with her about is that they're actually treating it. It doesn't look like they're doing much for him except locking him away down there. I think he's more of an experiment than a patient. I really wonder how we got there. I'm sure we will find out. Well, I believe, didn't Danny tell him before he left to find a cure for this? to go and fix himself yeah. somehow. That was an order. That was her order. Where else is he going to go, right? Isn't that the logical <clears throat> place where the maesters are? Yeah. Uh, but I think they're more about gaining knowledge and experimenting, and if that doesn't happen till an autopsy, well, so be it, you know? While we're talking about Emily, she also tweeted us this awesome picture, and I can't believe we didn't even recognize this. I guess it's because we have hours and hours worth of scenes in our brains for Game of Thrones. 
but she showed a picture and she wrote, it's like a mirror from season one. And what she's speaking of is when Jon Snow and Sansa are talking after they have their little rift during the meeting Mm -hmm. and they're walking up on the stairs and they're discussing things. The way they're both dressed, the way their hair is, and the way they're walking directly mirrors season one when Ned and Catelyn are talking. Yeah, now this is really great because I had heard some people talking about how Sansa was wearing the hairdo that Cersei used to wear back in season one, the way the braids are and the hair that's hanging down. And this was more of a reflection of how much of an influence Cersei has had on her. But with these pictures put together, you're right, it's so much more Catelyn. And in certain ways, Jon is becoming more Ned. And to see it here together, I I just love that. I like this take on it much better. Yeah, and they were both interrupted by somebody else while they're speaking. Unfortunately, who wound up being a divisive force that came between Catelyn and Ned and their family and created so much drama back in season one? Littlefinger. And here he is again. Speaking of full circles, they had another full circle in this episode. And it's kind of cool that now they're starting to just like wink at us. Hmm. When Sam at the end says, there's a whole mountain of them, meaning the dragon glass and the way he's sitting. It's full circle when, from when he was speaking to Jon Snow up north when they were discussing the likeliness of there being dragon glass in the world still. And they said, we would need a mountain of it. Hmm. That's certainly what it's going to take to fight the Night King and his army. And I'm sorry to go back on to him for a second, but you brought up something really great about the Night King. Claudio wrote in to ask us if we knew this fact that the Night King in his human form was supposedly the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and may have had ties to Bran the Builder. Now, we did know that, and we talked about that last season. We totally forgot, of course. Yes, but when you and I were discussing this the other day, you said to me, well, Christina, this makes no sense, though, because didn't they build the wall with the help of the children who put the magical protection on it after the first White Walkers came in order to push them north after the long night, and that's when the Night's Watch was established to man the wall? Now, I know we might possibly piss some people off because there's something we're missing And we might turn someone off and say, these guys are idiots. No longer listening to them, but we got to discuss it. So I did some research about the wall. I wanted to see what do we not remember. And in my research, I found when was the wall built? Most accounts say the wall was constructed 8,000 years ago before the events of Game of Thrones began. After the Long Night. Mm -hmm. The Long Night was the last time the White Walkers went to war with humanity. And you gave a great explanation of the Long Night last episode. Who built the wall and why? Legend has it that the giants helped to stack the enormous blocks to make the wall. However, such a colossal structure would have required the work of giants several times the size of those in recorded history. Of course, we saw the giants. They are huge, but not as big as that wall. Other legends say that the children of the forest contributed their magic to help build the wall. We know that their magic is extremely powerful, since they're the ones who created the White Walkers. Other stories attribute the elaborate structure to Bran the Builder one of the first men who lived 8,000 years before the events of Game of Thrones. He was the founder of House Stark and is often credited with contributing to erecting Winterfell and the Wall. So again, they reiterate, it was built at the end of the Long Night in order to protect and separate the world of men from the world of White Walkers in the far north. Right, and that's when the Night's Watch was established. Because if you think about it, the Long Night, they're trying to protect against the night, the darkness, the winter, the others. So if it's established to keep them out 
and to drive back the others. How can the 13th Lord Commander, this is however long the wall has been in existence that you get to the 13th person ruling, have been the very first White Walker? I don't know. We have to be missing something, but also could this be critical in figuring out what's going on with them, how all of this happened? Maybe the explanation will help us better understand. So if you know anything about this, please write in, let us know. If we're idiots, feel free to tell us that. We usually have our facts straight, and I do have a lot of history being a book reader, but as I'm sure you fans are all aware... Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire is very complex. There's a lot going on, and a lot of this history is very vague. George himself will write, oh, it was lost in history, or even the maesters didn't know back then. (laughs) The the books admit to not having the full facts. I do want to bring up the fact that we started this podcast four years ago to have a community with people. Mm. And now where there's, I mean, with Game of Thrones, there's so many podcasts out there, and it's hard to not get worried if we make a mistake, people are going to shun us and they'll go on to the next one. But I want to remember and keep remembering that this is for a community. If people get mad because we make one mistake or we don't know an answer, then good riddance because this is supposed to be a push, give and take and enjoying the show. That's bound to happen, guys. We don't proclaim to know everything. And in fact, I think that's what does get frustrating about other podcasts when they make a mistake because they come off as though they're the experts on it. They have all the info. It's also gets aggravating because you see that they don't put much work into it and they're getting numbers like you and you're like, wow, we put hours and hours and these guys are just off the cuff. Well, yeah, it's one (laughs) thing if you're getting names that we've known for seven seasons wrong, you know, versus some very complex history, things that we don't know a lot about even in universe, even in the canon. So we try to have the basics down. You know, like we said, I've, I've read the books tons of times, listened to the audio. There are hours and hours worth of research that go into this podcast. Hopefully that's what makes us a little bit different. We are definitely not the first podcast released each week because we want to try to have all of our stuff together, at least yep. at least when we do the deep dive ones, you know, when we really get into examining this. But we also never want to give up on the fun. And I think right. part of the fun of you and I is, well, let's have this conversation. Let's talk it out. Let's theory craft, even if it's wild and crazy. I mean, just speculating. There's this thought for other podcasts that you're not allowed to do that anymore. Hmm. You're not allowed to bring up things if they're really wild and far-fetched and might not come true or be based in fact. So yeah, if if that is um, not for you, then you know we can't win them all. But yeah. hopefully we will draw the people that really enjoy having this conversation. And, and that's what Clatcher's comments are about. So thank you again for all these write-ins because yeah. they, they spark one thought to the next. It kind of exactly. leads It's fun. That's what's fun. And things. keep them coming. But speaking of theories and way out there, your theory last week. <laughs> oh, boy. You're not going to let me live this down, are you? <laughs> At Snow Jackal Sr. wrote, I like the theory about Danny and the Walkers, but the Walkers have been around since Season 1, Episode 1. The dragons weren't born yet. Now, don't go too deeply into the theory, but give like a quick synopsis. The walkers are there. Oh, why Why did the walkers come back? I thought you were saying the dragons weren't there yet. And I was going to say, yeah, but there's been other dragons before then. This time around where I was saying maybe the walkers came back into existence now, maybe I wasn't doing a very good job of explaining it last time. I don't think it's only the dragons. I think it's this 
magic that runs through their blood. The, the Valyrians, if you come down the line now, it's the Targaryens, their ability to have some control and manipulate over fire, right? Whether that's in the form of their magic, being able to see into the flames, be able to control the 14 flames of Valyria, or to have some control over dragons. All of those things are fire in different forms. And so I believe that the White Walkers may have been created to go up against that fire and the danger it poses, and the dragons are just one aspect of that. But also, even though they weren't hatched yet, the eggs were in existence, right? They mm-hmm. were stone, and something about Danny being near them, coming into contact with them, exactly what I'm saying, kind of brought them to life. So was it the combination? You know, they were around, she was born, she was coming into her power, she was on a collision course. It was fated for her to get to them, reawaken the dragons, reawaken the magic in the world. So I, I think it was all kicking off. It just wasn't quite there yet. I'm also thinking... Again, I was having this great conversation with my coworker Mello, and he had brought up the fact that he's not too sure about your theory. He thinks it's really fun. <laughs> and I was trying to say, okay, so what would be their motivation? Mm. And what he thinks happened was that the human side of it poisoned the children of the forest's magic. What I mean by that is the children of the forest were creating these, this creature out of this Lord Commander, right? Mm-hmm. And what they didn't realize is that it would be poisoned by the humanistic side of this knight commander. Mm. So he's saying that whatever this human had qualms about, whatever families or whatever treasons were set forth against him in life, and we've seen just from these seven seasons how many things can happen to one character, how many people can destroy your family, destroy you, or try to destroy you, that that rebellious side is what is compelling the knight's king to create this army and attack. I have mixed feelings about that. I like that their magic went awry for reasons they couldn't have foreseen. And part of that could be the human element that they hadn't factored in. And especially if you think about perhaps it was a Stark. It was a North man. It was an Ice man, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. Those things get exaggerated, blown out of proportion into this creature of the Night's Watch. But it still doesn't get specific enough with for thousands and thousands of years since, when they come back, when they move, what are they after? You know, you're still not really kind of targeting, uh, oh, it's things from his past and it's, it's the fact that he was a human. What does he want? You know, why is he creating new others out of these children? Why does the ruling class almost look like a priesthood? Like, there's a religion to it. There's a higher purpose. They have a cause. Not the reanimated dead, of course. That's just their army. But the others themselves. So maybe my theory doesn't even get specific enough and deep enough to that. But I do think there's something that they're after. While we're talking about at Snow Jackal Sr., he wrote a couple other cool things. About costumes. Notice how Cersei is wearing dresses that cover her neck, knowing the last part of the prophecy is yet to come. Yeah, we had talked about the costuming in the episode one review, and I was very intrigued by the fact that it seems our major power players are all wearing very high-cut, black-colored outfits. So I do like where your head is at in that, as it relates to Cersei, it could be this subconscious fear of the second part of the prophecy. Now, we talked about this last year 
It wasn't on the TV show. And I don't know if that's because they're just trying not to lead us directly to it and keep us guessing or because they're not going to incorporate it. But there was a second part to the prophecy. Now, this is something that potentially could be a big book spoiler. I know we spoil all over the place, and most of the times I'm not going to really give spoiler warnings because we're very deep into the season now. So we're kind of past both the books and the TV, but this could potentially still happen. So if you're afraid of that, tune out for the next two minutes. The second part of the prophecy that Cersei had gotten when she was a child from Maggie the Frog, the one about her children dying, was that, and when your tears have drowned you, the Valonqar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. <laughs> so Valonqar in High Valyrian is, of course, little brother. And we had talked last season about, yes, everybody thought that was Tyrion. Cersei was going crazy thinking it was Tyrion, and she went on a mad dwarf hunt <laughs> and was having people bring her dwarf heads in the hope that one of them would be Tyrion and she would get rid of him. That's part of what led to this huge paranoia. But most fans always thought that was too easy and it was likely to be Jaime because even though they were twins, Cersei was born a minute ahead of him. So technically he is her younger brother as well. And then there was even crazy speculation, is it just the younger brother? As in someone like the Hound, who's a famous younger brother on our show. So yeah, I don't know. Is it going to happen at all? Who would it be in the event that it did? I think we've seen Tyrion do enough Lannister killing, and we've talked about a lot the fact that we think it is going to be Jaime that has to step up and eventually take her out. But I am still not off my thought that it's going to be with that sword, and we have the potential to transform that sword, whether it becomes Lightbringer or whatever else, I don't know. But all of this ice talk that we've been doing, he has one half of Ned's sword, which was ice. So to have that sword hmm. then kind of go full circle to fulfill this prophecy and become Lightbringer, I think is just poetically beautiful. And him having to kill the love of his life the way Azora High did, it, it just makes so much sense to me. So if it goes down, that's how I'd like to see it. And speaking of events in King's Landing, and we brought up the Hound, uh, I know people have been talking about this as well, but Alessa wrote in to ask if we might see the Hound in King's Landing. So if what we feared happens, Arya goes there, tries to kill Cersei, and is taken captive, we believe the purpose of that would be leverage, that she could use it against Jon and Sansa. Would somebody come to try to rescue her, as in the Hound? And this is how you get the Clegane Ball that everybody's been talking about, where he would fight the mountain. Now, I would have really liked that if the Hound hadn't gone this far north already, uh, I think he's on a mission. Him and Beric are, they must be pretty far north because it's snowing there. I don't even know how they would get word that she's there or get back down to King's Landing in time. I think their fight's now against the White Walkers. But in their trailer, some people thought that one shot was the Hound, and he was definitely in King's Landing. What if they do get that second raven, says, I have your sister, now what's up? And then... They cross paths with the Hound, and they discuss it. And the Hound, now we've seen, he's transformed. He wants redemption for the shite that he's done, right? This could be what he wants to do. He might say, I have to save her because she saved my humanity. Or, or, John, like or John sends him to do it. Now, so this is assuming that Beric and the Hound and them are cross meeting paths. up with John now. 
they're going next to meet up with John. And so then John would, would get the letter and tell him, you, you know what I really like they about... They might be because they have to tell him what the hound saw in the fire. Yeah, that's definitely true. And what I like about that, there's a bit of this book ring to it. Anytime there were parts of the book that didn't make their way onto TV, I always thought that Benioff and Weiss do a good job of bringing it back around later using their own kind of flavor. Mm -hmm. And forgive me if this has been said elsewhere because I haven't heard it yet, but I explained to you a little bit last season about the pink letter. In the books, this is the letter that Ramsey uses to incite John and to try to get him away from the wall, get him to break his Night's Watch vows so he'll come fight him in Winterfell. Because at the time, John's still a member of the Night's Watch. He can't leave. He can't fight his own wars. So the facts are a little bit different. In the books... Ramsey has Mance Raider, who's still alive at this point, and he did have who he thought was Arya. It's a fake Arya, but he doesn't know that, and she escapes him and goes north to try to seek help from John at the Wall. Now, this is actually just somebody else who's kind of on the periphery of the Stark family household who looked enough like Arya that they were able to put her forth and pose her as Arya. But she still kind of knew John. So when she escaped Ramsay, she went north to seek his help from the Wall uh, from John. So Ramsay writes this letter, this very instigating letter to John, saying he has Mance Raider, and these are all the crazy things he's going to do if John doesn't give him back what he wants, specifically his bride. So I feel little twinges of that in this theory. If Cersei writes this letter to John, this time saying she has Arya and what she's going to do to her and all of these crazy things to incite John to give up the real purpose that he has up north in order to come south and fight her. There's very mirror images mm -hmm. of that. So we have a few more Clatcher reviews. If we missed you, we're sorry. Keep them coming. We can only fit so many in here. From Amy62803. Great podcast. Great episode. By the way, the gift will totally be Ilaria. He doesn't want to give her everything yet, but just enough. Hmm, looks like someone agrees with me. <laughs> I've heard a lot of different notions on this gift that Ilaria could be bringing. Everything from Tyrion to the Sand Snakes to Lady Olena. And I had said either the Horn of Legend or a dragon. But I guess only time will tell. I want to thank everybody again for rating and reviewing. Please keep those coming. Keep writing to us. Every time you have an idea, let us know. Do us a favor. Tell five of your friends about our podcast and show them how to listen to it. If each and every one of you show five, the army will be big enough and we will be able to take on the wall. Now, I'm not sure if we're going to keep up with this format. I don't think we are going to do this same exact split next week where we do a separate segment for Clatcher's comments. We might try a little something different next week. Either way, though, there will definitely still be the one episode where we get into the bulk of our material. It's just a question if we have time for a secondary episode that's a little shorter, such as this. Reason being, we do have our Patreon podcasts. And we will be reviewing a movie this next coming week. Yes, and it will be Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. A dark force threatens Alpha, a vast metropolis and home to species from thousands of planets. Special operatives Valyrian and Loreline must race to identify the marauding menace and safeguard not just Alpha, but the future of the universe. And how fitting, with everything we were recently talking about with Valyria, that that's our next movie.
So if you're running out of podcasts to listen to, go over to our Patreon page. Easiest way is go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and click Patreon on there. And you can get a library full of bonus episodes and movie reviews that you'll really enjoy. Speaking of Patreon, another thing that they get is 10% off all of our gear. And I want to thank everyone who's been buying our Game of Thrones t-shirts. Check them out. They're going like hotcakes. You choose your banner. You can choose either the Stark side or the Targaryen side or both. And as a Patreon member, you get 10% off. It has our sign-off saying, this round's on me. Ours are in the mail. We're going to get it in a couple days. Can't wait to wear them and show our banners. So thank you again for supporting the podcast. And if you haven't gotten on it yet, check them out. The easiest way for that is go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. You guys seeing something here? Everything is on coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on gear and you see the whole store there. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.